0: Well, it's so good to worship with you this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us and singing. It's always so encouraging to hear. that We can sing in our car alone, which is usually unfortunate, but it's good to be together, to sing together corporately and be encouraged in that way, so we thank you for that. Well, we've been going through the book of Ephesians since the fall, and we've been going in pretty small pieces So we've been taking, you know, anywhere from one to four verses a Sunday and we we look at details and structure and sentences and all that kind of stuff. But I want to encourage you this morning, as we're doing this, it is necessary to also on your own look at the big picture, okay? So when we dial in, we see things that you're not going to see if you just read it through, And when we read it through, you see big picture things that you're not going to see when you dial in. So it is necessary that we do both of those things. And while we, here on Sunday mornings, generally take smaller pieces so that we can really get into it, I want to give you an exhortation this morning to be in the Word on your own. If the only interaction you have with this text is when you come on a Sunday morning, that will not sustain you in the world. It is my job to preach the word, to explain the text. It is your job to hear and read on your own as well. Sunday mornings just aren't enough. It isn't enough for me and I know it's not enough for you. And now we have a myriad of excuses, don't we? whether our job is too demanding or we don't have the time or our house is a mess and we have company coming over so we have to get it cleaned up and all of the things that go through. But let me tell you, whatever you have to change in your life to make time for the Word of God, do it. There is nothing more important. It's great that we gather together. It is necessary that we gather together on Sunday mornings. But if you are not feeding yourself through the week, If you are not daily opening the Word to some capacity, you're going to starve, spiritually speaking. So I want to encourage you. This is not a heavy-handed thumping you're getting right now. This is an exhortation because I love you. And I want you to be in the Word. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that simply will not happen if you are not feeding yourself. So we're going to see today it is the job of certain people to equip you for the work of the ministry. But it is your responsibility to be in the Word. And I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Make that a priority. Whatever you have to do in your life, there is nothing too big to change to make this happen. So, like I said, we've been going through in small chunks. Last week, we saw from verse 7 of chapter 4 that each of us has received a gift and that we are to use those for the good of the church. We saw that Jesus is not like an earthly king who simply receives and demands that we give to him, but he is a giving king who ascended on high and gave gifts to the church. And we saw that he gave the gift of his Holy Spirit And now today we're going to see five specific gifts that he has given to the church. Paul applies these five things to leadership, I think, in particular, especially when he's talking pastors and teachers. But there are ways in which all of these things that we're going to talk about today should be a part of all of our lives. You don't have to be a pastor to be someone who equips someone else. You don't have to be a teacher in order to instruct someone else. See what I'm saying? So we'll get into that a little bit as we go. So we're going to look at verses 11 to 13 this morning of chapter 4, and we're going to see three different things. We're going to see, first of all, the workers. Number two, we're going to see their work. And then number three, we're going to see the outcome of their work. So with that in mind, let's open to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read starting in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray together as we begin. Jesus, we thank you that in your wisdom and in your Perfect knowledge, you have given gifts to the church. You have not withheld your grace, you have not been stingy with it, but you have given in measure to each one of us. And you've given leadership, you've given people to serve, you've given people to work, all so that we obtain unity in the faith. And so, Lord, this morning I ask that you'd be here now with us through your Spirit, open our understanding to see what's in your word. As we look at these verses and we consider how this plays itself out in our local church, Father, give wisdom. We don't want to stray from your word. We don't want to speak falsely. We want the truth to stand, and so we ask for your help in that today. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Thank you for this body of believers, Lord, and their commitment to the truth of your word. Pray that you'd be honored here this morning, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's jump right in to verse 11, and we're going to see the first point, number one, the workers. And what I want to do here is to define these five things as we move through, and then explain a little bit maybe about how they operate in the current context that we're in. Um, so I also think it's important to point out that these five things are gifts. Don't forget this, okay? This is not five things that if you work hard enough or are in the church long enough, you might finally attain to this kind of higher level of gifting. These are gifts given, as we saw last week, according to the measure of Christ's gift, which I think needs to be emphasized so that we don't start to take credit for the things that God has given to us. It's really easy to start thinking too highly of ourself and what we have and what we do. And I think the point of Paul saying, these are gifts, right? Christ gave, he also gave, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. The reason for this is that we're not supposed to take credit for it. Okay, so keep that in mind. These aren't just elected positions. These are things fulfilled by people whom Jesus himself enables for the service. This isn't just things that we work for. This text is here to remind us that if we are leaders, if we are gifted in certain areas, if there's, a, if there's an evident gifting in your life, you did not gift yourself that Christ did. And that should produce in us a Spirit of humility. Paul's driving at unity, right? And that this whole section is about unity in the church. But you cannot have unity without humility. It's impossible. If we're all trying to get along and stay together and work at a common goal, and yet we can't even work together because there's so much pride and we're so convinced that we're the best, it isn't going to work. So in this discussion of unity, remember, we are called As we saw earlier in Ephesians, to humility, gentleness, patience. All of those things still apply even as we work through. So, first, He gave the apostles. Now, the word apostle has a couple different meanings in the New Testament. It can mean, in a very general sense, just a messenger, someone who brings a message. Peter uses the word this way in Second Peter when he talks about how his readers in Asia heard the gospel. He said, it, it came to you through your apostles. They were messengers, people who simply were sent and brought a message. The New Testament also uses the word in the context of, we might say, capital A Apostle, the 12 plus Paul, who were commissioned by the risen Christ himself for a specific ministry. Okay, the word is used both ways. And so, we need to figure out maybe which is the one being used here, because there's a lot of kind of information floating around right now about apostles in the church, and something called the New Apostolic Reformation, which is false teaching, by the way, if anyone needs to clear that up. There are not apostles in the church as there were in the New Testament church. We're going to get into that here in just a minute. Earlier in Ephesians 2, Paul told us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we noted how the apostolic teaching, what the apostles were teaching, we would call that the gospel of Jesus Christ, was foundational to the early church, to the establishment of the local churches. But I don't think Paul's looking back as he was in Ephesians 2. He was saying the church has been or is being built then But now, given the context and also the way that the words fit together, I think that he's suggesting it's an ongoing ministry, something that is going to serve for the advancement of the church. Here's what I mean. Just as in the beginning, when Christ commissioned men to go and take the message of the gospel to people who hadn't heard, this was a job of the apostles, right? They took the message, they were commissioned by Christ, they take the message, they establish churches, they train leaders, they equip, they do all these things. So, as the church grows and expands, there were men whom Jesus called to take the gospel to continue this work to bring it to people who had not yet heard. And they were to establish what Paul said earlier was the one faith. Remember we went through one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all those kinds of things? That was part of the apostolic ministry, to establish what we would call maybe orthodox theology. Now, while I don't believe that nowadays there are apostles in the same sense that hear directly from Jesus and communicate that, right? Hebrews chapter 1 says, in former times we heard in this way, but now we've heard through the Son. Okay? I do believe that the apostolic principle should still be evident in our churches where we receive a call from God to take the message of the gospel, to take the good news, establish churches, spread the word, all of those things. That is, in a sense, what happened here at Grace Bible Church. Right, Jesus called me, specifically, to take the message of the gospel to Monticello. And we established a church, we want to train, we want to grow together, we want to do this. Now, does that make me an apostle? No. Do I operate somehow in an apostolic way? Kind of. In the sense that I am obedient. I'm not patting myself on the back here, by the way. I'm just saying, God has commissioned me to preach the gospel. I know that. And in my obedience, I am functioning somewhat apostolically. Does that make sense? And this is a really short overview, and this can get really hairy. So if you have questions, I would love to talk with you about this, because this is a gift that Jesus gave to the church. And while we do not operate as they did in the early church, there is still the principle of apostolic ministry in which we hear from the Lord through His Word and respond to that call. Maybe that's enough on that for now. But like I said, if there's questions, please, I want to talk to you about this. Next, we have to define the word prophets. He gave the apostles and prophets. Now obviously, there's probably a little bit different understanding between how the Old Testament speaks and refers to and articulates the prophetic ministry and how the New Testament would speak about that. In the Old Testament, one of the main ways that people heard from God was through the ministry of the prophets, right? God would reveal something to them, whether it was in a dream or a vision or actually audibly hearing from God. He would deliver the message and then the prophets would give that message to the people. This is mostly how the prophets functioned in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, although there were sometimes elements of foretelling, and we see that in the book of Acts, we see that the prophetic ministry functions slightly differently. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, Paul says this, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So I think this is a good way to think about this, given the context that we see in Ephesians 4, because Christ gives these gifts, and the purpose that we're going to see of those gifts is the building up, the encouragement, the edifying, and the equipping. So when Paul says that Christ has given prophets to the church, It's not so much that people are, as they were in the Old Covenant, building the context of the Scriptures. They're not hearing from God and adding to the Bible. Okay, I don't believe that's what's happening. But there are people who are gifted at encouraging and speaking and building up and using the Word of God to do those things. Christ gave this gift to the church. And again, really... This can get really complicated, and I don't think it needs to be. This is in the Bible for our good. Every word of the Bible is true, okay? So I'm giving it a really surface-level treatment today. And you're welcome to disagree with anything I'm saying, and I would love to talk with you about that. I just want to be careful that we don't go down a rabbit hole unnecessarily as we look at some of these things. So the ministry of the prophets is, I think, to receive a message from the Lord, through the Scriptures, and encourage someone with that message. Okay? Back then, before we had the canon of Scripture, they would hear directly from God. Now that we have the canon of the Scriptures, we use the Word of God as our reference. If someone comes to me and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, I say, hallelujah, what's the reference? Now, I'm not trying to limit what God can do. He can do whatever He wants. and If He wants to speak a certain way, that's wonderful. But primarily, God speaks to us through His Word. In the past, Hebrews 1 again, God spoke through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us by His Son. And where do we hear from Jesus, brothers and sisters? In the Word of God. We want to keep the Word of God central to everything that we do. Next, evangelists. Now, this word is only used three times in the New Testament. Once here in Ephesians once in the book of Acts to refer to Philip, and then once in Second Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy, who is a pastor, to do the work of an evangelist. And I think we can say that evangelists are people whom Jesus has gifted to clearly make known the gospel. We probably all know people who are not intimidated by having those conversations, who are very free and open with sharing their testimony, with getting the gospel out there. These are people who are gifted by God to evangelize, to spread the news, to share the gospel. And as I said, we should all be doing this to some degree. This isn't just for the higher level or if you say, well, I don't have that gift, I'm not going to share the gospel. That's not a pass for us, right? These are things that should be evident in all of our lives. So the gift of evangelism, I think, is noteworthy that Paul, like I said, he uses this to exhort Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, as a pastor, here's one of the things you ought to be doing. Do the work of an evangelist. And here's what I get from that. I take this to mean that even though, as we're going to see, pastors and teachers are responsible for the equipping, for the training, for the readying, if you will, of the sharing of the gospel, we are not exempt from doing the work ourselves. Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. This isn't a top-down thing where everybody in leadership says, okay, congregation, here's the things that we ought to be doing. Well, the things you're ought to be doing. I'm just going to equip you. No, 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 no. I'm part of the congregation. I'm to do the work right alongside with everybody else. So it's my job to set the example in these things in addition to participating with all of us to do them which is why pastoral ministry can be such a weight at times. And I'd ask you to pray for all of us pastors as we try to fulfill this calling. Now, the last two gifts that Christ has given to the church are shepherds, or pastor would be the same word, and teachers. And I think Paul puts these two together, so even if you look in the text at verse 11, he gave the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, and then shepherds and teachers. In Greek, it's one. It's a hyphenated word, shepherd, teacher. Okay, it's very, very closely related. And by these being so closely related, we should see that there ought to be present in the ministry aspects of both of these things. Okay, so shepherding refers to care. That's what it means to be a shepherd, to care for, to pastor someone, if you use it in the verb sense, is to care for them. The teacher is the instructional part. Those who hold the right doctrine of the church communicate that, teach, train, all those kinds of things. So, here's how that can work. If you have someone who is an excellent teacher, just communicates really well, very smart, very educated, knows those things, but is not engaged in caring for the people, he ought to work on that side of his ministry, And likewise, if you have someone who is gentle and compassionate and caring and really does well with the pastoral side of things, yet he can't handle the Word of God, he ought to work on that side of things. And that's not to say that everybody needs to be perfect in these areas because we can't be. (laughs) And we'll talk about that in a second. But the text is actually one of the texts that I use to articulate when people say, why do you guys have many elders at, at your church? Why do you have a plurality of elders? I say, well, because... And I would go to this text and say, we've all been given different giftings. Some are good at teaching. Some are good at care. Some are good at shepherding. Some are good at instructing. All these kinds of things. So one person can't be everything. I can't be everything you need as a pastor, which is why I'm not the only one and why I'm so thankful that we have, I'm one of four elders here. And we want to serve the church well, and we just know that we can't do that alone which is why there's not just one of us. But if you're looking, and I don't just mean you and me in this context, I'm going to speak in generality so it doesn't get weird. But if you're looking for your pastor to be perfectly humble, yet bold in his preaching, uh, strong yet really you know compassionate and transparent and perfectly gifted in teaching and preaching and listening and care and setting a budget and setting the vision and running a meeting and all these things you can stop looking because you're not going to find him you're looking for Jesus at that point there is not one man who can do all of those things which is why we're convinced that our church there needs to be several men who God has gifted differently and uniquely that can work together to further the mission of the church. And I'm so thankful for what God has done here. The Bible tells us that as, as elders, as pastors, we are under shepherds. We serve under Jesus. He is our example. And to the degree that we as your elders look to Christ, emulate His service, His humility, His gentleness, His teaching, all that kind of stuff. We're on the right track. But as a congregation, you need to keep us accountable to that. We're not beyond failing. We're not beyond falling. So hold us accountable. We serve Christ as we serve you. That's our job as shepherds and teachers. So that's number one, the workers. God has given gifts to the church in the form of people who possess particular giftings in order that they would use those things for what? that's our second point, the work. Number two, the work. What is this work? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When God gave these workers, when he gave these giftings to the church, he also defines what their work is, kind of a job description, if you will. People who possess The gifts mentioned in verse 11 are to employ those things, put those things into operation to strengthen the people in the church. In a word, this work is equipping. It is a work of equipping. We could easily look at verse 11, see these giftings, see the different ways that God has ordained things, and assume that it is just the job of the leaders in the church to do the work. Right, well, God gave gifts, they're they're leaders, they're shepherds, they have the gift of evangelism, they do all the, we'll just let them do that, and I don't think that's the point at all. I think when we keep reading in verse 12, we see that it's not the leaders alone who accomplish the mission of the church. It's not up to the ones who just have the gifts to do the work, rather, Christ gifted those leadership areas in order to equip everybody else to come in and do this, Over and over in the New Testament, we see the image of the church as a body that has many parts that work together, okay? And when all of those parts work together for a common good, for a common goal, it is the way that God has designed the church to function. As a pastor, I need to be careful that I don't see myself only as someone who equips, And then I just leave the work to everybody else. And you need to be careful that you don't see me as the boss or the person who just, he'll take care of it, he'll do all the work. That isn't how the church is supposed to operate, at least how the Bible tells us. It would be way too easy for me to do too much in the church. You know how it is. Sometimes it's if it's going to take you 20 minutes to do something or you could spend two hours showing someone else how to do it, sometimes we just do it ourselves. That isn't how the church is supposed to function. John Stott gives a warning against this in his commentary. This is what he says. I thought this was really helpful. The New Testament concept of the pastor is not of a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes everything else. But the picture is of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to the end to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts. This is our job as pastors. I don't want to do all the ministry in the church. You don't want me to do all the ministry in the church. It would be terrible. I promise you that. As we saw last week, we have all received a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift, right? All of us have received that. And usually the struggle isn't in recognizing that, it's in trying to put that into play in a way that's helpful for the church. That's part of the equipping that pastors and teachers and everyone else is called to do. My job is to encourage and promote and equip the gifts that God has given to you, and so that you use them in the body of Christ. This is what I'm called to, to equip you with what you need so that you can do the work of ministry. And the equipping can be done in a variety of ways, right? It can be official training, it can be giving opportunities. Sometimes we have gifts, we have abilities, we have things God has given to us, and we just lack the opportunity, that's part of the job of the pastor is to create those opportunities to use your giftings. So, number two, the work is a work of equipping. Now, lastly, number three, let's look at the outcome. What should happen in a church when Christ gives gifts to the church, explains how you are to use those gifts? What's the outcome? Well, I think we see that in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the outcome? Unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. And of course, like I said, you could also add humility in there. All the itty words, humility. You got it, right? So I think there is... Four things in this verse that Paul lays out kind of as goals for us to attain. He uses attain language, kind of strive for, arrive at, grasp, kind of get that in your mind. So four things. First, he says we are to attain to the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. In verse 5, Paul said that there is one faith. And we said there that this is the collection of orthodox or agreed upon doctrine of the church. There is not many ways to think about Christ. There is one way to think about Christ. There are not many ways to think about salvation. There is one way by grace through faith and so on and so forth. And so part of the equipping that happens in the church is to equip all of us to understand the implications of having one faith, to have a firm hold on this unity of the faith Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to know everything there is to know. And hopefully that's evident to all of us, but I think I need to say that. When we're striving for these things, it's not like you get to a certain point of understanding and you go, okay, finally, I think we have unity in the faith. We can move on. It's never going to happen until we are glorified. And I'll mention more on that in a minute. Next, he says that we shall attain the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God. Now, I think what Paul is getting at here is part of the one faith that we confess as Christians includes right teachings on the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus Christ is God, which is why Paul, I think, here doesn't just say right teachings about Christ, which means Lord, right teachings about Jesus' name. He says, the Son of God. which I think it's important that we understand as believers who exactly we are serving, We are serving the Son of God. He is not just Jesus, the historical figure, or Jesus, the good teacher, or Jesus, the get-out-of-hell-free card. He is our Master, our Lord, our Savior, our brother. He is, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, declared to be the Son of God with power. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the knowledge of the Son of God that Paul wants us to attain to. Now the last two things in verse 13, mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ go together a little bit, so we're going to treat those together. I think the point of Paul articulating things this way is to help us understand that when you grow, when you mature, as we are sanctified, It's not just becoming a better you. I think there's a lot of language out there, at least in some places, that promote Christianity as kind of a way to better yourself. Um, And I want to be careful how I talk here because there are implications of living a life that honors God in a way that does make us better people. But that isn't the primary thing, right? Christianity is not just to improve yourself. It is to mature us Into what? Not just a better you, not just a better David, into a Christ-like David, a Christ-like you. That's what I think Paul is driving at here with this language of mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What he is after by using this language is to help us grow not into a better self, but into a Christ-like self because ultimately that's what we need. As good as you can be, you are still sinful. Therefore, Paul does not just say, we need to mature to the point where you're the best you that you can be. That's a load of it. We need to mature to the point of Christ-likeness. Often in church, you'll hear the word, or you should hear the word, sanctification. It's a big, long word. What does that mean? It means the lifelong process, the ongoing process of becoming like Jesus. I think sanctification is a good one-word summary of verse 13 because sanctification is not going to be complete until we're glorified. Right? It, It never stops. Your growth never stops. You never reach a point where God's like, okay, you're holy enough, you can get through now, I'll quit. That's not what happens. Sanctification is ongoing, constant, continuous through our whole life. That's the tension of talking about this kind of stuff. Paul uses this language of striving or attaining or grasping. And we want to do that. We ought to do that. And yet we know that we're not going to fully get it until we're with Christ. This is going to continue to be the tension as we move through the rest of the book of Ephesians. All the commands... All the instruction, all the encouragement are things that we ought to pursue, we ought to do, knowing we are not going to fully do it or completely do it. That's a tension that we have to live in and that we have to get used to. Otherwise, here's what happens. We strive for obedience and we fail, which we will. And you get frustrated or discouraged because what in the world? I thought, I thought this is what I was supposed to do. I thought this was the path of obedience. I thought this is what God wanted for me. We will never be perfect until we're with Christ. But in the meantime, the call is perfection. How do you balance that in your mind? Do you have categories to think that through? I want to keep us from two errors. One being that we would just throw it away and say, well, I'm never going to get there. What's the point? I won't even try. I I know I can't get it. Whatever. That's error on this side. Error on this side would be I'm going to work, 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 work in hopes that God will recognize what I'm doing and approve me. We have to find the balance of those two things, where we are called, this is all of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, walk this way, walk worthy of the gospel, quit sinning, quit doing this, love your neighbors, love your wife, love your kids, love your husband, all of these commands, and yet we know in our sinfulness we won't be able to obey them, yet we are called to obey them. So don't get tripped up on this idea of wanting to be obedient, wanting to honor the Lord, wanting to walk in worthy of the calling, and yet knowing that we're not going to be able to. Don't let yourself get frustrated with it. This is why we have the Holy Spirit. This is why earlier in Ephesians, we read that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is the one who enables our sanctification, because on our own, we're not gonna be able to make any progress. But with the Spirit of Christ, living in us, we can make progress and we ought to be striving towards that. To attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're called to as Christians. So we saw the workers, the people God calls and gifts for specific work in the church. We saw the work, which is equipping and building up in the church, and then the outcome of that, which is Humble unity and maturity. Now, as we come to a close, I want to tell you two things that this text should remind us of. Two implications, I think, coming out of this text. First, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, reminds us that God cares about the church. God cares about the church. He is not created the body of Christ, placed Jesus at the head, ordained all of the circumstances and then just let it go to see what happens. He cares for the church. He's given gifts to everyone in the church so that the church would function the way that He has designed it to be. God cares about the church. And He cares about the people in the church. So, I want to be careful that we don't get this kind of corporate, businessy idea about the church that it's a bunch of structure and, and things and it's, it's cold and impersonal and I just, I just got to fit in the slot where I'm gifted. That, that's not how we should view this. God cares about the church, He cares about the people in the church. He cared enough to gift each one of us so that we can serve in ways that will both encourage the body around us and fulfill us in the way that God made us. God cares about the church. Second, this text reminds us that the details of the church matter. The details of the church matter. It matters how we organize. It matters how we structure. It matters what we do when we come together on a Sunday morning. Why? Because God has ordained in His infinite wisdom that the local church be the place where His people, you and I, are equipped for the work of the ministry. Therefore, it matters what goes on on a Sunday morning and in the different ministries of the church. Yes, God cares for the church. He cares how it's put together. And it matters what we do. And we're going to get into more of this as we move through the book of Ephesians. Instruction, parameters, boundaries. What do we do as believers? I think this text reminds us that the details of the church matter. God did not ordain parachurch ministries or whatever kind of other thing to be the primary means of equipping. Those can be helpful things. And we should engage in those things. But it is the local church that is primary it is the church of God that is called to equip and grow and send out. And we ought to be found doing this work. I think this is also an opportunity for us to give thanks to God. <laughs> think of all the ways that things could have been set together, all the ways that God could have structured things, and He didn't. He structured it this way. We're now, right now, on this Sunday, we're all gathered together here. This is what God has intended. So I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, for giving gifts to the church, and to remind us that He cares for us and what we do. Let's pray together as we come to the table now. Lord, I am so thankful to You that You did not set things in motion, and pull your hand away. But you have given gifts to the church. You have equipped people uniquely to serve you, to serve in the church, to edify and build up, to train and equip. Thank you that you care about your church. Thank you that you have placed Christ as our head and we do not have to wonder who's in charge, who's making decisions, how does this go, Lord? Christ is the head of our church and we look to him and we thank you for setting things up in this way. What a wise plan. Lord, I pray that as Grace Bible Church, as this local expression of your body continues now, that we would be faithful to you, we'd be faithful to your word, knowing that you care about us and it matters. It matters what we do because this is the place where our brothers and sisters will be equipped for the work of the ministry. Lord, help us to take this seriously and to be obedient to you as we grow, as we minister, as we fellowship together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Would we all live in light of this now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.